Many of you have heard the story of how my wife and I met, how Krista and I met. If you don't know Krista, she was the one who was leading us in worship just a few moments ago. But many of you have probably heard the story of how we met. We met in Galatians class, as all good couples do. And we met at our seminary. And uh, what you may not know is that there was a gap between the time that we met and the time that we dated. And to be honest, that gap existed because I was foolish. You see, I was already interested in someone else. Thank you. Took a minute, but I was interested in someone else. Um, I know it was foolish. It was silly. But uh, this... Uh, girl was, was someone that I was interested in. She was pretty, not as pretty as Krista, of course. She was, she was smart, not as smart as, as Krista was, and is, still is. I'm not helping myself, am I, in telling this story, but I might need to abandon ship soon. Um, but um, the problem was that... Um, in my dating life, I was a person who loved it when someone played hard to get. That just became a challenge for me, and I loved overcoming that challenge, and the harder you played hard to get, the more interesting you were to me, and she, this other girl, really played hard to get. It was very, very difficult to get her attention, to get her to return a phone call, to get her to return a text. And finally, we had a chance to have a conversation that I said I would, you know, love to, you know, go out with you, get to know you a little bit better. I'm interested in being more than just, you know, casual friends. I'm interested in maybe seeing if there's a relationship, you know, and I'm just pouring it all out at the table. But I can see that you're not interested, I said. So I'm, I'm not going to push the issue. I'm, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to stalk you. So I, I just, we're done. Like, I, like, let's be friends, but I, I, I promise I won't do this anymore. And after a couple of days, she phoned me back and said, um, why don't we go out? Let's talk. Let's see if there's a future. It was like, as I became disinterested, she became more interested. Now, that's not the point of this story. Please do not write any of this down as, wow, that's great advice. This is fantastic. Like, I should play hard to get, and then I'll get the boyfriend or girlfriend or the, you know, the husband or wife of my dreams. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. So don't go, this is not Brian's advice for dating. This is actually Brian's wrong advice for dating, okay? So we decided to go out on a date. And I was in my office at the church that I was working at, and my boss came by, and he said, so, um, you got any plans for the weekend? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know that girl from, from the seminary that I've been chasing and chasing and chasing? We, she finally agreed to go out with me, so we're going out, and we're, I, I don't remember the plans, but we're going out to do something. And he said, oh, that's great. And then he paused, and he said, you know, I had a friend once, uh, just gifted by God, seminary guy, fantastic preacher, amazing creative leader, had already done so much in ministry for God, for his church, had 
clearly felt a call from God. This is where God had challenged him to go into ministry full-time as his sort of vocational career and to serve the church, and he was just all excited about that. And, and we could see that God had, had, destined, had him destined for great things. He, he was just ready. And then he met this girl who didn't really believe that, didn't really believe that the church was, was all that important, and she was a nice girl, but um, he was just so enamored with her and excited with her, they ended up getting married, and he never went into ministry. He ruined the call of God on his life because of his decision to marry this girl. She was a nice girl, but they were not compatible. Have fun on your date! And he walked away. Why can't a guy just be happy? Right? Like, why can't, after all this time, after all this chasing, I finally get this girl to say, yes, let's go out on a date, and my boss says, this is a huge, huge, huge mistake. Why did he tell me that? Uh, in hindsight, I don't think it was because he had talked to Krista, and Krista knew that we were destined to be together. That's not how that worked either. I had to convince her in the same way, because, um, guys, let's be honest. Every guy who gets married, marries up. No one marries down. Every guy marries up. Guys, say amen before, you know, you're in, there you go, before you get in trouble. That's right. Every guy marries up. And we know that. We learned that. So why did he say that? Why did he tell me a story of a friend who ruined what God had for him because of this one simple choice? I think it was because he knew that decisions made in a moment can affect us for a lifetime. And sometimes we make decisions in a moment that take us off the path that God intends for us to have. That's why he told us that story. That's why he told me that story, and that's why I'm telling you that story. I'm not communicating that this girl before Krista, who shall remain nameless, does not have value. I'm not saying that she's not a person loved by God, a person who's serving God faithfully. I don't know any of that. But I do know that she's loved by God and is, is a person who Jesus died for. I'm not saying that she doesn't have value. She just wasn't a fit for how God gifted me and where God wanted me to head in life. And it would have come down to a choice. Who do I want more? And sometimes you and I make those decisions in the moment that can challenge the rest of our lives, and we can't get them back. I think what my friend was saying, my boss was saying, was that I needed to take the long view on this. I needed to look down the road of my life and say, is this decision going to take me where I want to go, or is this going to take me on another path, another direction? I think I needed to play the long game. Do you know what I mean by the long game? So it may not be a familiar term. It's actually a sports term. The long game, um, as the best example that I can give you, is when an athlete says, our goal for the season is to win the championship. That's at the start of the season, right? And if they uh, work and, and devote themselves all 
week to get ready for the games on the weekend or get ready for their schedule, they know that they will put themselves in a good spot to get into the playoffs and win the championship. If they do not win the championship, is the season a success? It depends on who you ask. If you ask the athlete, the answer is no. If you ask the athlete, the answer's no, because their goal is to win a championship. And any coach that says otherwise will not get the best players. Imagine a coach at the end of the season. Well, you know, we tried our best. You know, we had a good group of guys. We had a good group of girls in the locker room, and uh, we didn't win. But, hey, we were successful because we made the playoffs. Hey, we were successful because we had a winning record even though we didn't make the playoffs. Nobody listens to a coach like that. No player wants to play for a coach like that because players want to win the championship. And I think that's what Paul has been teaching us, what we've been learning in the book of Colossians in our series called Mindset, that God has an ultimate goal for all people, all Christians, that we have to to work towards, that we have to prioritize in order to win the championship, which is to build a life on Christ and Christ alone. It's to live a gospel-centered life. But sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it is really difficult because we make decisions in the moment that seem right and feel right that turn out to be devastating to our ultimate goal down the road, the long game, the long view. Have you ever felt that in other areas of life besides your faith? I'll bet you have. If you ever have wanted to lose some weight, if you ever thought, I need to get into shape, but oh, that dessert table at the buffet, oh, it has so many good things. This is why I'm so confused about church potlucks. Because people bring such good food and such good desserts. And then we're supposed to be healthy and fit, ready for ministry. It seems like they're two conflicting messages sometimes. Or we want to be debt-free. But that outfit, it's just so cute. I want to get that. I want to have that. I know I don't have the money for it, but you know, that car. Oh, I'd love to have that car. That car would be fantastic to drive better than my other car. It's got all the bells and whistles that I want. Oh, that tool. I can't go without that tool. I got to have that because that's going to make me more productive. That's going to make me better. I got to have that. I got to have this. I got to have this kitchen utensil. I got to have this video game. I got to have all of those things. I mean, I, I, I want that. Why is that so hard that we know that we need to have the long view in life, but Sometimes in the moment we make decisions that affect the long game. Well, sociologists have coined a phrase that I think helps us. It's called FOMO. Do you know what FOMO is? Might be a new term from some of you. Some of you know what FOMO is. What's FOMO? Fear of missing out. It's an acronym. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. This is what Wikipedia says about the fear of missing out. FOMO is the feeling of apprehension that someone is not in the know or is missing out on information, events, and experiences or life decisions that could make one's life better. 
it's often driven by a feeling of regret, trying to avoid regret. I don't want to miss this, which may lead to concerns that you might miss an opportunity for social interaction or a novel experience or a memorable event or a profitable investment. FOMO could result about not knowing the contents of a conversation, missing a TV show, not attending a wedding or a party, or knowing that others have discovered a new restaurant that you haven't tried. FOMO in recent years has actually been attributed to a number of negative psychological and social behavioral symptoms. In recent times, FOMO has increased due to advancements in technology, particularly social networking sites that thrive on creating FOMO. Social media sites are great. We use them at the church. I use them personally. But as they provide opportunities for social engagement, it offers a view into an endless stream of activities for which we're not involved. And when we see other people involved in those activities on their social feeds, we think, why don't I have those things? And it has created psychological dependence on social media or even pathological internet use. Have you ever met anyone who can't put down their phone? FOMO is present in the way video games are marketed. TV shows are marketed. Make sure you watch the next episode before you see spoilers online. FOMO is used in investing. Don't miss out on cryptocurrency. Don't miss out on the latest NFT. And it's also used in business marketing. Don't miss this opportunity. I even used it in the announcements today. Did you notice that? Don't miss out on an opportunity to serve others. I don't know if that created FOMO as well as some of these other things. But we use it. And here's the thing about FOMO recently. FOMO is associated with worsening depression and anxiety and a lowered cause of life, a lowered a quality of life. We don't want to miss out on the moment. We don't want to miss out on what, hap what is happening now, and that FOMO can sometimes feel so real that we will do anything, including bankrupting our future the future that God wants for us in order to have a moment now. And that's something that all Christians need to wrestle through. So we've been talking about in these last few weeks about why we should build our lives on Jesus Christ, why we should build a gospel-centered life, why we would give all of our strength to serving His people in His church so that the church of Jesus Christ accomplishes His mission. Why should we do that? We've talked all about that. Today we're starting a whole new part. We've, we've proven that we should because of who Jesus is, that there is no one more supreme, that He is the Creator God, and no one offers us what He can offer us. He offers us a change of not just our habits, our outward religious appearances that make us look good. He changes our hearts, our attitudes, so that we actually are good from the inside out. 
He offers us forgiveness and a relationship with the God who created everything so that the God, the one who called himself I Am in the Old Testament, is our heavenly Father. We get to be his family. We get to be his children. So now that we know why, the question is how. How do we build our lives on Jesus? How do we gain that long view of life? Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Colossians chapter 3. And let me show you how we begin to build our lives on Jesus. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. That's the end game for every believer, to be presented fully mature before Christ when Christ comes back, to be ready for His return. And the way that we get ready to, for His return is to set our minds, to set our hearts on things above. In other words, what we need to have is a heavenly mindset rather than a situational one. A mindset of the moment, a mindset of now. We need to have a mindset of the future, and we need to understand what that future leads to. In other words, we need to have a mindset of eternity. We need to have the mindset of heaven rather than the mindset that we're given when we are born. So let's unpack that a little bit. How do we develop a heavenly mindset? It's interesting to me. Paul would say that we need to set our hearts and minds on things above. I recall what a friend of mine once told me that I thought was so helpful. You know the statement, uh, you are what you eat? You know, science kind of proves that as um, not always accurate. What's a better proof of who you are is you are what you think. You become what you think. And so, in this case, what Paul is going to tell us to do is learn to leverage the power of your thoughts, learn, train your mind, train your heart, so that you set your mind on heavenly things. So, how do we do that? How do we develop that heavenly mindset? He gives us three things we must do. We develop a heavenly mindset when we refuse to indulge sinful appetites and behaviors. Take a look at the 3 verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We develop a heavenly mindset when we refuse to indulge sinful appetites, when we say no to sin. We start to set our minds on things above. Why say no to sin? <clears throat> well, Paul tells us that that's the reason why God is judging the world. The problem with the world is sin. The problem with us is sin. And that God is going to ultimately judge the world, and no one wants to be a part of that judgment. Because the wages of sin is death. And anyone found outside of faith in Jesus Christ is condemned to eternal death. I don't know anyone who says, yup, that's what I want. I want that kind of judgment. No one wants that kind of judgment. Now, here's the thing. If you know that's what's coming, then you can prepare for it. If you know that weather is coming, you can prepare for it. You can get your shovel ready when you hear that snow is coming. You can get your umbrella ready when you hear that it's about to rain. You can prepare for the weather in the same way you can prepare for eternity. You now know that God is going to judge sin, so don't act in sin. Refuse to act in sin. And that begins in your mind by refusing to indulge sinful appetites. And by that, I simply mean temptation. All of the things that are listed in that passage that we just read, start with a desire to indulge yourself. Here's what I want. I'm going to take that from you. I'm going to have that for myself. I'm going to put myself in a position above you. I am going to be more important than you, and I will do whatever it takes to get what I want. If it's lust that I want to satisfy, then that's what I'll satisfy. And when we dwell on those things, we get into trouble. So Paul says, don't believe that as, because it's a lie. Jesus was the one who demonstrated what we want the most and what we need the most. Jesus was the one who said, your greatest problem is sin. I am going to conquer that for you. I am going to give you victory over that. I am going to give you forgiveness and a relationship with the God who created all of the universe. Why settle for only what sin can offer, which is pleasure for a moment, which is satisfying for a moment, but what Jesus offers lasts for a lifetime. In other words, I think what he's saying is let God define your self-image. Let God be the one who directs what you want in life. Let God be the one who helps you understand that I know I feel this in the moment, but God has the big picture in mind. He has the long game, the long view in mind. I can trust him with the long view. It's um, something that we do I think in our work, I think it's something that college students do well, all students do well. I think we understand the concept of deadlines, don't we? At work, you have some deadlines, you have a project that you need to get done, and yeah, sometimes things go wrong, and other people don't 
fit the things that they're supposed to do. But you know that you have a deadline and this is when the work has to be done. Or otherwise there'll be consequences. College students are given a syllabus. The syllabus is your secret to success. Why is that? What's in the syllabus? Do you know what's in the syllabus? may have been a while for some of you to, that you've been in college. But think back to those days. What was in the syllabus? Outline of expectations. What was coming each week. And implicit in that is how can you prepare? What's going to be on the exam? What's going to be on the test? I can guarantee you that what's going to be on the test is in the syllabus. You know that you are guaranteed a passing grade. The level of success, the level of passing is up to you. But if you know the syllabus and work according to the syllabus to prepare for what's coming, then you will be ready. The syllabus will tell you that you have to write a paper or have to write a test. The dates are given out in class, but you know those things are coming so that you can prepare for them and be ready. We know that deadlines are coming in every arena of life. Deadlines are coming in our faith. There will come a time that God will judge sin. So let's not invest our time in a moment where we want sin. However, I recognize that everything I just said is much easier said than done, right? Like, let's not minimize the struggle here. Because while sin is a universal problem, temptation is often a personal experience. You see, the sins that God say that are off-limits for everyone are off-limits for everyone. But the way that we are tempted to participate in those sins often comes in different varieties and different forms that are specific to you. Your enemy knows you better than you know you. And he knows your weakness. And he knows how to get you to trip up. He knows how to get me to trip up. And so one of the things that I need to recognize about temptation as it is a personal thing is that I need to be responsible to set boundaries for myself to help myself not fall into sin. Behind that idea is that there are appetites that must be starved. There are appetites that must be starved. The classic example that I've shared before is that if you struggle with overeating, if you struggle with gluttony, maybe don't go to the buffet. Take steps to not put yourself in situations where you are tempted. Now, is it wrong for people to go to a buffet? What do you think, yes or no? No, it's not wrong for people to go to a buffet. But if it's a problem for you because you constantly overeat, and it causes you health issues, and you know that God has said, don't be a glutton, then perhaps the time for you to say no is while everyone else says, I know you're going to the buffet, but that's, that's not for me. I just can't resist all that food. I need to behave a little bit better. That's personal. That's wise for you to do. You know what tempts you. So set up boundaries so that uh, in your life so that you can avoid feeding the temptation 
starve it. Starve that appetite. We develop a heavenly mindset when we do. We develop a heavenly mindset when we refuse to indulge sinful appetites and behaviors. Now, developing a, a heavenly mindset takes more than just a strategy against sinful behavior because that's just telling you, okay, don't do this. And if you've ever heard of sermons that say, okay, now that you know, don't do this, all you think about is what you do, were just told not to do. So if that's what we're to avoid, there's the defensive side. What's the offensive side of the ball? How do we begin to act? What is it that we should be doing instead of? What should we do that's universal for all of us and works in all situations and circumstances? Well, if the defensive side of creating a heavenly mindset is refusing to indulge simple uh, sinful appetites, then this is where we go on the offensive. We develop a heavenly mindset when we show others the grace that God has given us. Take a look at verse uh, 12. Now that he said, don't do all these things, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these things put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What Paul is talking about here is amazing grace. Be passionate, compassionate, be kind, be humble, gentle, and patient. Bear with other people on the journey of life. Forgive them as you have been forgiven. Love them as you have been loved in Christ. That is a clear example and clear steps for any person to begin to build a heavenly mindset because it forces our minds to go to what God has done for us. No one can be gracious like this without an example. We turn to the example of Christ to have that. And since we know what grace is because of Jesus, we can choose to show that grace to others even when we don't want to. And that's the amazing thing about what Jesus offers us that no one else can or no one else does. He offers to change our hearts as well as our habits. Do you know what grace is, right? Grace is undeserved or unmerited favor. It is treating them in a way that they don't deserve. Where they've treated you poorly, you treat them excellently. A number of years ago, um, we went with some friends apple picking. You got apple picking? Is that one of your things that you do in the fall? Uh, love to take the family apple picking. It's kind of one of our favorite things to do every year. And this year we took a uh, family with us. We found a local place and uh, we met up in the parking lot and we went out. We got apples together. We had fun. We probably ate more than we got. I don't, I don't know. It's always speaking of gluttony. Yeah. Is there such a thing as apple gluttony in New York State? Maybe. Um, uh, as we were getting into the car to leave, we heard this clunk. 
when we turned around and we saw that the, our friend's child had thrown a rock at our car. Not just any car, but the new car we had gotten just a couple of months before. It still had that new car smell, and now it had that new car dent. Uh, the child's parents were just appalled. They quickly descended, one, one descended on the child to uh, help correct her behavior. They did it in a way that wasn't embarrassing or overreacting, but it was strong and enforced, and the child knew that she had done wrong and was in trouble and was going to get in trouble more when she got home. I think she knew that. Um, and then the parents were just so apologetic, just over the moon. What can we do? Can we pay for it if there's any problem? But in the moment, here's what my wife and I said. Just a car. Um, we've got a book on our to-read list called Use Things, Love People. Why would you need to write a book like that? Because people love things and use people. We need to remember, I think, as Christians, what has more value? What should we love more? Do we love our things more or do we love people more? So we showed them grace. We're not trying to pat ourselves on the back. But I think it's important that we love people more than we love our things. We use our things and don't use people. That doesn't mean people shouldn't live in the consequences of their actions. But here's the viewpoint that Christians know that is unique to our faith. A circumstance is not the end of someone's story, but is an opportunity in their story. It's not the end of their story. It's an opportunity in their story. Do you believe that God can use all things together for good for those that love Him? Yes. That God has made beauty from ashes, correct? Yes. We are living proof of that. He has taken our lives and turned them into something. He has made beautiful things out of nothing. And He can still do that and still wants to do that. So it's important to remember that God can still use those circumstances, use those moments where you struggle to show grace by thinking, what if there's an opportunity for these people to become more Christ-like from this? What if there's an opportunity for me to become more Christ-like from this? Maybe... God can use you as an example of Jesus to the person who's throwing rocks, not at your car, but you. We set our minds on Christ when we choose to show others grace that they don't deserve. So we develop a, he a heavenly mindset when we refuse to indulge sinful behaviors. We develop a heavenly mindset when we show others the grace God has shown to us. And that grace can help us 
choose to reflect who Jesus is, not just in our relationship, but in all circumstances we find ourselves in. Because we can find a heaven, we can develop a heavenly mindset when we choose from that basis of grace to be Christ's representative, to reflect Him. Let me show you. In verse 15, we read that let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Be a representative of Jesus in all that you say, in all that you do. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a representative of Jesus? I would suggest that it's to intentionally prioritize the message of His life and what His mission was all about. He came to show us the Father, so get to know the Father. He came to give us forgiveness, show forgiveness. And do that, not just expecting it from others, but participating in that with others. Learn from others. Be admonished by others. Be taught by them. Teach them. Admonish them. We prioritize repentance for life change and personal growth. We worship Him with passion and inspiration. We do everything in the name of Jesus. Uh, this past fall, um, we were taking and uh, enjoying going around to a number of college fairs. Um, we were talking to different representatives at the booths, and what was amazing to me was that there were some booths that didn't have any representatives, or some booths where the person who was the, the college representative was more interested in talking to the person at the next table rather than talking to a prospective student. And the, and the uh, conversations that we had that stood out to us are those advisors standing at those tables who was more interested in Josh than who was interested in what was happening or just like, you're a waste of my time, I don't want to be here, I can't wait to get out of here. You may not have taken your child to any college fairs recently, but I bet you've been to a restaurant that you gave poor reviews of in your mind, let alone online or not, even if the food was good. Because there's two things that can sink or swim a restaurant. It's good food and good customer service. You can have the best food, and if you have lackluster qual uh, customer service, what happens? <clears throat> Wouldn't go back. I get delivery. <laughs> I'm not going to sit in that restaurant again. You get a bad experience from a bad waiter or a bad waitress, then you're not interested in going back no matter how good the food is. You still need good food. You can't overcome the need to have good food by great customer service, but you're willing to give them a second try if the customer service is excellent. How many churches have great food and poor customer service? How many Christians know the truth And don't know how to share it well. 
I think this is for everyone. This is a really a humbling point for me because every time I think through um, my annual reviews or what I've been commenting on, you know, you know how to communicate the great truth, but you sure could be a little more merciful to people. True, I very much could. I think this is for everyone, for the person who's been following Jesus for a long time or the new believer. The long-time Christians sometimes believe that they've arrived at being a good representative of Jesus because they know a lot. And the new believer sometimes believes that they will never arrive because they don't know enough. But isn't it interesting that the process can get totally derailed by the amount that we love enough? And that's what Jesus did. He didn't just demonstrate truth. He demonstrated grace and truth perfectly, holding those two tensions in place. And you know what that tells me is? That the ability to be a representative of Jesus is something that every Christian must choose to do, not just once, but daily. Not just daily, but in every moment and circumstance where they find it difficult to do that. But it also means that anyone can be a representative of Jesus regardless of their past and regardless of their present. They can choose in the moment to live the grace and truth of Jesus and to represent Him well in the moment that they're in. And it starts with a simple choice to do your very best and to give your very all at being His representative more than you are your own. We set our minds on Christ when we choose to be His representative in all that we do. Now, that's a lot, so let's sum up. I think ultimately what we must do is that we have to choose what matters most. Does the moment matter? Does what I want now matter? Or does the long game matter? If you choose the long game, then there's three things that you need to do. You need to make three choices. The first choice is to refuse to indulge those, simple appet- those sinful appetites. The second choice is to bring difficult people to Jesus. I will show grace to them regardless of how they've treated me. And the third choice is to bring difficult circumstances to Jesus, to ask for His help to be a representative of Him no matter what you're facing in life. So let's make it real personal. Is there a sin that you've been struggling with? Is there a sin that you've been indulging that you know God says is wrong, but you, you, it's just hard to say no? You've rationalized it in a way. There's hope because there's Jesus. That sin can be forgiven. That temptation can be resisted. Not because you're strong enough, but because you choose to give it to Him. If there's a person that you found it difficult to show grace to, and let's face it, I think everyone has a person who it's difficult to show grace to, there's a way forward in that relationship because of Jesus. 
And you can bring that difficult person to him and you can ask him, God, would you redeem this relationship? Would you help this moment? It's not the end of their story. It's an opportunity in their story. Are there situations where you've felt you failed to represent Christ? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's in your marriage. There's a fresh start. And you can bring that situation, that circumstance, and you can ask Jesus for help to represent him well. And you can start today. And you can evaluate each day. Make the choice. It all starts there. And if we can help you in any way, let us know. You can fill out the Connect card and say, I'd like prayer, and we'll be happy to reach out to you if you leave us some contact information. Uh, one of our elders will reach out so that you can ask for prayer. Let your group leader know. If you're in our ladies' group or our men's group, that's a great thing to come to them and say, listen, I'm struggling with this. I've got this relationship where it's really hard to show grace, or I'm in this circumstance where it's hard to represent Christ. Would you pray with me? I'd love to know your wisdom on this. Because we'd love to pray, we'd love to support you. Don't just live for the moment. Don't sacrifice the championship. You are what you think. You aren't what you eat. Build a life that focuses on the long view, the long game, the bigger picture. It's up to you. Choose what ultimately matters most. Let me pray for you. Jesus, in this moment, we ask for your spirit to be in our midst, speaking to each one of us. Lord, would you help us to see that we can trust you, that we can build a life on you, and that it is worth it, but that we need to make a choice. We need to make a choice to resist sin, even those habitual sins that have plagued us and dogged us. Lord, would you help us in those moments? Would you help us to know the personal boundaries that we need to have in order to resist temptation? Because we don't want to make a decision in a moment that would affect your long view, the long game that you have for us. Lord, would you help us to live out the grace that you have shown us and to show grace even to those difficult people who don't deserve it. At one time, we were those difficult people. And at one time, we didn't deserve that grace. We recognize that. We recognize that we still don't deserve your grace. And yet you have shown us your love and forgiveness and freedom and a relationship through Jesus Christ. So would you help us to extend that grace to others? Would you help us to refuse to see how other people treat us as their end, but as an opportunity for you to walk through? And would you help us to show grace? And in every circumstance, God, would you help us to be your representative? 
in our relationships, in our online presence and platforms, in the way that we leverage what you have given us as your stewards of time and talent and treasure. Would you help us to be your representative? Lord, we, we know we need to make a choice. And there have been times in the past where we have failed. So we ask for your help to build our lives on you, to commit to these things, to have that heavenly mindset that keeps the long view in view. Would you help us to choose what matters most, we pray in your son's name. Amen.